welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 3 Dinhianicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Episode 9 Tochvark Edna Part 1 A Fly on the Wall. I met them with mild words and open smiles. My husband is this new young wife he had bought with so much gold and even greater labour. Oh, I flattered her with gentle compliments, calling her King's Daughter, worthy to sit beside me in our home at Brilaf. And she was beautiful and young, it was true, though I cannot say that she deserved the name of the most beautiful woman in Ireland. But equal to me, full enough. Most noble woman of my people, skilled in the knowledge and magic of the Tour de Donnan, the cunning pupil of the most learned of them, the wizard Brashel, my foster father, equal to me? Oh, no. Oh, I could see that Angus had warned my husband Mither to treat me with care, and that he did, calling me wise, prudent. And I might have accepted a second wife with pleasure as helpmeet and companion, but not this ignorant milksop daughter of an insignificant northern king. And besides, Mither was spitsotted with her. And so I bided my time, dissembling acceptance, awaiting the moment when I could use my powers to be rid of the usurper and take my revenge by stripping my foolish husband of both his wives, the new and the old. The time was not long in coming, for once Mither believed that I truly welcomed the girl, he left us alone together. I took the simpleton to the centre of the house and sat her down in a fine chair, pretending concern for her comfort. Then I took the revenge that was my right. I struck her once with a wand of power a rod of purple rowan shape changing her before my eyes watching with satisfaction as she began to lose form and substance belting away until she was nothing more than a paddle a small pool of water on the earthen floor soon even that should be no more and she would be lost to the limitless air as for me i left mither that day and returned to the home of my foster father brushel but I am Fulmnock, and I have knowledge of things that my eyes do not see. And what I knew was that I'd left the house of Mither just too soon. For the heat of the house dried up the pool rapidly, and something of the girl was left behind. The lessening of the moisture caused a worm to form, and the worm became a fly, as purple as my rowan wand. As day followed day, I heard much renown of this shape-shifted fly. It was, they said, very beautiful and large, or as great as a man's head. Sweeter music than the harmony of pipes, harps and horns, it was reported. The sound of her voice and the melody made by her wings. Her eyes, I was told, would shine like gems in the dark. Her fragrance would turn away hunger and thirst, and the drops she shed from her wings would cure all sickness and disease. Mither would fall asleep at her humming, I heard tell, and the fly would awaken him if anyone should approach him in enmity. But the worst news of all was that Mither was never without her company, and had publicly stated that as long as this fly was with him, he needed no other wife. Now I held this as an honour-shaming insult and vowed that my revenge would be without parallel. So now I draw to myself my power and make ready my spells, and cloaked in wisdom I shall offer certain sureties of peace to enable me to get close to this precious fly again. Then and then the fullness of my anger will finally be released. I, Fulmnog, will let loose a storm of such violent passion that the shape-shifted woman will be buffeted away into the long and lonely waste of the world. Forever. Well, one of the main themes of the Adventures of Nero, the one we did last, the podcast mm -hmm. we did last, was that 
but um, it was all about what can happen when two worlds meet, when yes. the human world clashes with the other world of the she. Yes, and we learned quite a bit about that other world. Oh yeah, there was probably there was a portal. Remember the portal yeah. with the man on the track, and oh, I bet it was. Even, I think in some ways it was even more exciting than the proverbial wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and there was even time shifting stories that would be worthy of the Doctor. Right, uh, and of course there was even a child born of parents from uh, who crossed the Great Divide. Yeah. You know the the half elf. <laughs> you know, worthy of Luthien and Baron. Yes. I tell you, that story's got everything. It has, rather. And, of course, huge and significant outcomes. Yes, and that really affected every single participant come, comes out of it changed. And even a marvellous horse, a one-head... No, I don't mean a one-head No. <laughs> The strange one-headed horse. horse. No, it had one leg. Yeah, and uh, a chariot with yeah. one pole which went went. through the centre of the horse. Yes, and fixed to its forehead with a bolt. I think that's what I meant by the one-headed horse. Yes. The horse with a bolt <laughs> in its head. Yeah. If you haven't heard the podcast episode, there's still time. That one's not going anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. But it's time to start a new one. It is. Our next story has all the above and it, much more. It does, but it doesn't have the horse. No, but it has a lot of other things. <laughs> and it goes on for a thousand years. Yes. Well, hopefully we'll make this episode a bit shorter than that. <laughs> We're aiming to see, see it three episodes yeah. probably on this story. Yeah. Um, about the usual length, we hope. We hope. Not a thousand years. <laughs> Definitely not. It might feel like it, though. Yeah, but that's enough about the last time. Let's get on with the story for that we're starting on this episode, uh, which is the story of the wooing of Aideen, uh, in Irish known as Tochfark Aideen. Well, the story doesn't start with her, does it? Or even with her? No, it doesn't. Um, at the very start of this story, we bump into an old familiar friend. Oh yeah, one of our personal favourites, yeah. the Doctor! Hurrah! Yes, although he's a little bit different in this story than uh, his characterisation in Moitura. And for one thing, he's presented as being a king, you know, a temporal ruler mm -hmm. of Ireland. And that kind of fits in with the Lavergavola tradition, where there's this euhemerisation of the mythical character. Characters. They have to become historical, and the Doctor's too important not to be a king. Yeah, it's sort of making uh, mythical characters into his pseudo-historical characters. Exactly, yeah. To explain you hemorrhizing. Yes. <laughs> That's a great word, that. It is, I love it's brilliant, it. yeah. Right, well, at the start of this story, as we said, we find the Dagda, our dear friend, and he and Eslu, who is also called Bowen, really fancy each other mm -hmm. and want to sleep together, but there's a little problem. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> the fact that Eslu's already married uh, to Elkfer, and they reside at Brutna Boyne in uh, mm -hmm. Newgrange, in the Boyne Valley. Um, and so the Dagda, in his uh, wisdom... Um, decides he's going to send Elper off on an errand. He sends him up to Magnanish to go and do something with Bresh McAllison. Um But the trick is that while Elper is away, Dagda and Ethlu can conceive the child. Uh, the child could be gestated, born. Uh, Ethlu is fully recovered and the child sent off in fosterage to Mither all before Elkfer gets home, and Elkfer thinks that only one day has passed. Yeah, he does this because he doesn't want to shame exactly. the man, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, and this this is kind of an interesting one, that although it's not uh, necessarily the case that sleeping with someone else's wife is a bad thing, they seem to be sparing Elkfer's feelings. Mm -hmm. So we've got our, we've got our really this brilliant... Uh, time-shifting exactly. motive. Yeah, that somehow either between the Brunaboyne and the outside world or perhaps in Elkfer's head, somehow one day seems, or rather nine months, seems to pass in one a day. A year, really. Yeah. It would yeah. have to be a year yeah. to get all that done. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've wondered about the names involved in mm. the story. You've got Elkvar, mm -hmm. you've got Ethna, mm -hmm. you've also later on got Aideen. Yeah. I'm beginning to get a very metaphorical feeling about this story. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's certainly there. Uh, Elkvar, as we said, before, because we discussed some of this right back in series one with Tales of Ethlu, Elkfer, his name means spite. It's got sort of jealousy. Sort of jealousy as well, but certainly this kind of idea of, of, of spite and unpleasantness, and which is maybe why the Dagda's trying not to, to, you know, to ruffle him. He could be spiteful. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, as you rightly said, we've also got the Ethlu or Ethna character, who, you know, it's worth remembering, is the same person as Bowen, and that's 
mm-hmm. specifically said in this story. But that Eslu name, as we discussed before, it's the seed or the kernel, something at the heart that, that begins a growth process. And mm-hmm. as we've also seen before with Eslu characters, they tend to have a baby and then disappear off into the background. Mm-hmm. And she does exactly the same here. She bears Oingus, sends him away to Mither, and uh, then that's kind of the end of her role. And although we won't meet Aideen yet, there's mm. something odd about her name as well, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. There's, uh, I think that while there is, if you like, a, a poetic connection between the names of Aideen and, and Ethna, Ethlu, that that first syllable of her name, Aid, is the word for jealousy. So we've got jealousy again. Yeah. So th- we, this suggests that this story is going to be about, about jealousy or involve exactly. a lot of jealousy. Yeah. Now, oddly enough, um, this story is about the Boyne. Yeah. But earlier on, we referred to stories about uh, now. Yes. Do you remember back in, what was it, Dintianicus and Dreamtime? Yeah. We use the story. And again, I think we've referred to it in other places as well. We probably have, yeah. But it's worth going back. And um, if you didn't hear the episode or, or read some of the articles, it's worth going back and having a look. That's episode two of this series. And we can probably reblog the well, Dinkanicus def- story. Exactly. There's yeah. jealousy involved in that, isn't there? Well, not only jealousy. We have uh, Elkver showing up again. There's the story where Elkver's daughter... Englech is uh, in love with Mither, but uh, it's also uh, Oingus also loves her. Then Mither abducts her, um, takes her off uh, in hiding, and Oingus, in going to look for her, uh, comes to the hill at Nouth and um, is all pining away for her and drops his hazelnuts all over the ground yeah, while the making nut, a lament. The nut lament, which yes. is lovely and interesting. So here we've got a lot of the same themes because mm. we've got Mither mm-hmm. and we've something that's going to happen later, the yeah. abduction of, of a woman. Yeah, and Oingus is in the picture and even Elkfer, like we said. So a lot of the same people showing up. So we've got our character, our dramatis yeah. persona, turning up in more than one story. Yeah. Is, do you think sending him to Bresh is relevant? Because, I mean, Bresh's name is to do with clamour, uproar. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's directly relevant. Uh, I mean, there are other characters. There's Breschel Etherlov, who's, uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned in the opening story, who's Fumnach's foster father. And the name seems to have the same root. Um, I'm not sure how deliberate or conscious it is. No, there's this quality, though, of metaphor. Exactly, yeah. You know, we have jealousy, mm. uproar, disturbance, mm. Mm. and the Dagda stirring. Yes. For good reasons, for good reasons. <laughs> Very good reasons, You yeah. know, what I think about it, uh, mm. that story of Nokvar, mm. um, Nauth, there was something else that struck me. Mm. You know, there's another time twist there. Yes. Because do you remember how um, Breschel's sister yeah. stopped the sun in the sky yeah. in that story? Yeah, now this is a different Breschel again. This is Breschel Bodiva. It's the same name, exactly, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And that will indicate to an audience that there's a very specific connection here. And there, Breschel's sister, who I think... Uh, uh, the conclusion I drew was that we can think of her as Bua, uh, mm-hmm. giving the name to, to Nokva. Um, and she said that she would stop the sun in the sky so that Breschel's people could build the mound in one day. Yeah, you know, so we've so got holding we've got back a, the night again. We've got a strong connection. Absolutely. So we have our time tri- time shifting element yeah. and things happening in one day. So yeah. just a bit like uh, Nero. Yes. Time runs differently in the two exactly. worlds. Yes. And of course, all that stuff where the, the names are about sort of jealousy, uproar, abduction, inversion. You know, the whole bit. It's all set up in that first part of the story. Yeah. The scene now moves to Mither's Court on Breleth. Nine years later. There's, it's the usual full-scale court, isn't it? Mm. You know, the high-status court with thrice 50 lads and thrice 50 maidens, mm-hmm. all in attendance, usually at sport on the on the, the, the terrace outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, young Angus is there and he's just uh, playing along with the rest of the lads. But he's no idea who he is. He doesn't have a clue. He thinks that he's the son of Mither, though he's not been told this. Mm. He's certainly the leader of the young fosterlings, and he's a natural leader, mm. as well as the best-looking, the strongest, and all the rest of them. Yes. And while they're playing games in front of the dune, he quarrels with uh, Triath, who is a, a fearbolog, yeah. and who's captaining the other team. So basically, the captain yeah. of the two teams are having a bit in of the a football th- match, or the having a match, are having a go. Yeah. And he has a go at Triath, saying he doesn't see why he should waste words on the son of a slave. Mm-hmm. But Triath gets his own back and says he doesn't see why he should waste words on a foundling who doesn't even know his own parents. <laughs> well, this sort of takes Angus back. He's mm. kind of shocked at this. And he goes off to complain bitterly to Mither. So, Angus is growing up. 
But before we look at his life with Mither, I suppose you, you ought to mention how he gets his name. Exactly, yes. Why he's always known as Angus Og. Yeah, Angus Mackendog is, is the full name. And uh, it's, again, to do with the time-shifting quality. For, uh, there's sort of two parts to it. First is the Angus part. And I think in the Dinhelicus poems on Bowen, we get that element because it's Bowen slash Ethlu saying to the Dagda that sleeping with you was my one desire, oin gus. And so that's where we get the oingus bit. But in this story, she says, young is the son who's born between day and nightfall. And of course, Mock is a son, and uh, as in S-O-N, Og is young. But Mock and Og, it's usually, he's usually called the young son, but it's actually son the young, if you want yeah, to be yeah, yeah. literal well, about considering it. considering that uh, sleeping with the Dagda was her one desire, <laughs> yeah. that's obviously true because she just disappears off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then, yeah. Ethel, that's her name. That's what she does. Um, it's interesting, though, that they kept his parentage a secret. You'd mm. think, you know, having done all this, mm. why keep it a secret? Well, again, it seems to be spare Elkvar's honour, if you like, as well as his, his feelings, you know, but also uh, not blackening his name because to be cuckolded is obviously terribly shaming for a man and that cuckolding is, you know, when it's done behind one's back. I think it's than... the bit, once they've started behind yes. the back, his yeah. back, it stay, has to stay that exactly, way. Exactly, exactly. And they, they don't really wish him any ill, you know, they, they don't yeah. want Elkvar to suffer because of this. Yeah. You know, so yeah, so they they seem to let Oingus think that he's Mither's natural son. You know, no one even corrects his assumption. Even yeah. though he is treated as a foster son. Well, yeah, even he's though he's out there the yeah, playing with all the other fosterlings. That yeah. interests me, this retinues of 50. Yeah. This turns up over and over again. It There's does. always 50 or thrice 50, thrice 50 but they're yeah. always, uh, always like, you know, like the soldiers are numbered mm. in, the warriors are numbered in nine. Exactly, yes. But your retinues are numbered in 50s. Yes, I mean, we had this uh, when they were looking at at Fled Vrikran and the Community Sports Day, day yeah, in, right. in Kruchen, there was thrice 50 lads all playing games out on the field. Doesn't Kessa turn up with 50? Yeah, she turns up with 50. Uh, again, we had the three uh, women uh, in Fled Vrikran showing up each with their 50, well, 50, 50 maidens. Yeah, yeah they're right. So, yeah, I think it's, it's just a sort of satisfyingly large number, you know, um, and certainly when you read descriptions of any of the centres, whether it's Breleth as it is here, Brune the Boyne, um, it's Kruchen, the Evan, yeah, exactly. So thrice 50 yeah. means a good a high status load. court. Exactly. And of course, the higher status you are, the more you will be asked to foster yeah, uh, yeah. kids because that, that helps our status. 150. Yeah. That's 150 <laughs> girls and 150 foster Boys. girls. Yeah. Foster boy. That's a lot of yeah, children. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I don't yeah, think yeah. that's literal. <laughs> but it's odd, isn't it, also, that Angus calls um, Triath son of a slave. Yeah. He's, even though he is, a, a, he's another foster son of Mither. Yeah, and so must be of significant status. I mean, I wonder whether this is almost like a racist comment against the fear bulk, you know, because Triath is specifically given as a, a fear bulk. And although, again, they're not enemies, and clearly they do have some status, otherwise they couldn't afford to send uh, one of their sons off to be fostered by Mither, but there seems to be still this kind of divide, yeah. this snobbery. Well, of course, if you go back to the Battle of Moitura, mm. there they soundly beat the uh, Fibola. Yeah. And they were left as a, a marginal people. Mm, mm. So it's this sort of like, oh, it reminds me a bit about the way the Romans treated the Greeks. Mm. Uh, you know, after they conquered the Greeks, they respected them hugely oh, and yeah. all of their abilities, particularly as doctors mm -hmm. and, and artists. Yeah. But they still made fun of them, particularly mm. in, in Roman drama. They were all seen as effete yeah. and uh, made, they, they, they made great jokes about them. Mm. So... Yeah. Maybe it's something like that. Yeah. Well, let's see how Mither reacts. Yes. <laughs> well, after that, Oingus kind of goes running into Mither, as we said, uh, complaining. And uh, he went, oh, I have been defamed by this son of a slave, this fair bullock kid. He's cast in my face uh, that I have neither mother nor father. It's no fair. <laughs> so <laughs> Mither says, but that's not true. In order to, uh, one would presume, try to comfort Oingus. And then, of course, he, he reveals the truth that uh, Oingus is, in fact, the son of the Dagda and of Ethlu Bowen, and that they had uh, kept it all a secret in order to that Elkvar wouldn't get annoyed. 
Um, and then Oingus demands that he be taken to the Dagda um, and be publicly acknowledged Not as putting his son. up for it. Not no. putting up with it. Exactly, exactly. So off they trot anyway to Ishnuk, uh, which is said to be the centre of Ireland. And this is where the Dagda has his court. And uh, they meet with the Dagda and he says, well, yes, he is my son. Um, Mither says, well, it's not right that he should be landless and you have the kingship of the whole of Ireland. Dagda says, yes, he will have land, but I don't want to do anything public until the land that I want to give to Oingus is unoccupied. And this is, of course, the Brunaboyne, uh, the very place where Oingus was conceived and, of course, the place where Elkvar currently resides. So there's still a problem. Doesn't want to upset Elkvar. Exactly. But he wants to give him his home. Exactly. And, and that, <laughs> this very particular uh, place. Yeah. It's interesting that the Dagda's associated with Ushnok yeah. because it's central to Ireland. Ushnok, it's, it's a significant place, but mm. archaeologically it's quite sort of standard or is that not fair i don't know i mean um it, it isn't the geographical center of ireland oh uh, no. no that's sort of closer to athlone somewhere around lochery anyway yeah, interesting enough not far from ireland's end of days bath plug yes well that may need explaining <laughs> well yes that's a, a reference to Othliag finn uh which of course is at lanesborough the, t- the top end of lochery and uh, that was also in Dinyanicus and Dreamtime. We mm-hmm. talked about that story with the, the weird stone with the golden chain on it. So. And it said that when that's pulled, yeah. that will be the end of the world. Well, it'll be a week before the a end week of the world. The world. <laughs> so you see, that's more likely to be the centre yeah, yeah. than, than, say, Ushnok. Yeah, But yeah. it is it is an important place. I'm not saying it, it is, mi- but it's... Mythologically, it is. But you were saying you tried to have a look at the archaeology. It I... doesn't seem to be a lot. There, well, there's, there, there are... There, there's a well, there are enclosures, mm. there's cairns, mm. but not compared to some of the other places. Mm. You know, it's it, it. You find that everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, the next part of the the, the story. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets really strange. Yes. The next bit takes place around Samhain, doesn't it? Yes. It does. um, I mean, the Dagda advises Angus to go to the brew on the day of Samhain, and the odd thing is he's he's to go armed Mm -hmm. now Salm was a time when specifically says that no one should bear arms exactly that it was a time that nobody should threaten each other with weapons which is interesting in itself yeah it then that that turns up more than once Mm -hmm. and uh elkvar he's told will be unarmed as you'd expect yeah i love the way he's described he said that he he would be unarmed save for a fork of white hazel Mm -hmm. and his cloak folded around him and a gold brooch in his cloak this very um noble looking man is described Mm -hmm. angus is Mm -hmm. to threaten elkvar yeah and seriously threaten him but Mm -hmm. he's you know threaten his life yeah but he's told he mustn't attack. Yeah, it's it's uh, one of those wonderfully Dagda-ish things is that, you know, to go armed when you're supposed to be unarmed, to make a threat, but that it would be utterly wrong to carry out that threat. <laughs> but it has to be a credible threat. Exactly, yeah. Because Elkvar must feel in danger of his life. Exactly. And to save his life, mm-hmm. he will agree to any boon he's asked for. Exactly. And what he's to ask, what Angus is to ask for, is, if you like, the use of the boy for a day and a night. Yes, yeah. That he should have the power, he should have the kingship in Bruin the Boyne for a day and night. So Elfar has to clear out yeah. for 24 hours yeah. and just allow this young man to go, I'm the king of the castle. Exactly. <laughs> uh, now that's what he does. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, that when he gets back and Elfar says, OK, your 24 hours is up now. I want my uh, home back. He yeah. says, aha, <laughs> you said I could have it for a day and a night. And do you not know that all time is made up of days and nights? Exactly. And Bother. therefore, I'm the king for all time. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> You're just making that up. That's nonsense. I don't believe you. But, you know, the, mm-hmm. it, can't be, it has to be ratified. Yes, it has to be adjudicated. Essentially, this is now a dispute. And it's his father who's going to adjudicate. <laughs> exactly. And that's what the setup's all about. It's a bit of a con, isn't it? It is. But again, this is obviously a way for the Dagda to put things in the right place, but without 
directly interfering and without it being obvious that this is what he's doing is uh, just giving his natural son and his I have birthright. to admit he offers him territory he offers Elkvar yeah. territory of an equal status exactly. the same amount and right next door exactly so he gets another property with river frontage yeah yeah. <laughs> but it's not the Bruner boy no and Elkvar is perfectly happy with that as well it's a strange bit of story isn't it and it's it quite is. well known it, yeah bit. I think it's quite well known um, one thing that I like that's worth pointing out is this thing about all time is made up of day and days and nights uh, is uh, sort of prefaced in the story by saying for as it is said mm -hmm. and you do find this in quite a lot of the mythical sagas particularly you find this thing where they seem to be quoting an adage mm -hmm. you know I think we had it in the stories of Alec as well where the Dagda said as it is said, it is better to have a spell of his service than, than his corpse, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, but I think I was at a paper recently that was talking about this kind of proverbial quotation and the role that it has in the sagas, you know? And I think it is, it, it implies that these are sayings or adages that would be known to the audience. And I think we still know of it. I mm. think it's effectively the year and the day yeah. of folklore. That uh, And uh, yes, if you could write from Roman slaves who if they could run away for a year and a day, they were free. Yes. If you can stay somewhere for a year and a day, mm -hmm. you know, and they sailed away for a year, year and, and a day. day yeah. <laughs> it's always this year and a day is all time and none. Yes. It, it, yeah. it, it's a year, which is the full cycle, mm. plus. Yeah, exactly. And that extra day makes it forever. Exactly. And in fact, in modern parlance, there is forever and a day, you know, which is sort of infinity plus one, you know. So I think this all this a day, mm. a day and a night represents all time. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. that all time is made of day and night. Mm. It's probably the source of this folkloric mm. uh, year and a day. Yeah, it it's certainly uh, encompasses the same idea, I'd say. One thing I did want to mention was, mm. why is this, why do you think the Brunner boy, why is it so important that Angus gets the Brunner boy? Why doesn't he get the territory next door? Aside from it being the place where he was conceived, um, there's a bit of a more, if you like, direct reason. And that is that the, the title of the place is Brug na Boine, and that is, Brug is kind of territory. Mm -hmm. um, it has the same root as hill and promontory and this kind of thing. Which gives us brig. It does, gives us brig, yeah. Um, and so it's the territory of the, of the Boyne Valley. Um, but there is, I think, quite a deliberate pun, um, which is that there is an old Irish word brew, which means a womb or a bosom or a belly. Mm -hmm. um, and so you would could also understand it as Bowen's womb. And of course, that's where Oingas came from in the beginning. So, yeah. you know, he's sort of returning returning to the mother's womb. It just struck me as you were talking, this mm -hmm. thing about the sort of sacred sites, you know, mm -hmm. the sacred territory, in the sense of what the, the people who created these stories mm -hmm. were living in a landscape of ancient sites. Yeah. And often the most important sites were ones which were actually Neolithic sites. Yes. And often at the centre of those was the was effectively the brew in both senses. Exactly, yes. The, the house, the, the, the womb of eternity. Exactly, exactly, yes. And uh, I, I think even Seamus Heaney has written about the womb and tomb, you know, in reference to Newgrange. You mm. know, that and they're is, all over the country. Exactly, yeah. So any territory held mm. by a king of um, any period from uh, 1000 BC right mm. down to... A thousand AD mm. would have been aware of the importance of these places in the landscape. Exactly. So, if you like to have your territory centered as Kurokin is yeah. on these ancient places, yeah. would have made it more important. Exactly. exactly. It just struck me that maybe mm. that's what it's about. Yeah. Well, certainly in relation to Oingo specifically, you know, it's it seems to be it's almost like fate or destiny, you know, that it, or to be more precise, the rightness, the court. The rightness is that Oingus should be in this place from which he's come. And it's also the place connected with the ancestors. Absolutely, big time. But I mean, there are a lot of them around that complex and this does specifically refer to the Newgrange Mound. Goodness, we could go on about absolutely. this ages, yeah, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah. It, there's so much, the more mm. you think about it, the more, the there, more is. there is to yeah, tell. Yeah. Of course, this all takes place at Samhain. Yes. And Samhain itself is a time, a very interesting time. Now, we're not going to go into the whole of Samhain now, even though no. this will go out. Yeah, around then. Around and then. Of course, we were talking about it somewhat last time when we were looking mm -hmm. at Nera again. You know, so we have covered this before. But, yeah, I think it's particularly interesting that uh, it's stated very explicitly that Samhain is a day of peace. So can... 
Ungus become king of the Brug, as it were, because of a sort of Twelfth Night re reversal. Because these reversals mm. connect, are connected. Everything is thrown upside down yeah. at Samhain. Yeah. People who normally go armed go unarmed. Yeah. That which is above the earth becomes below it. Mm. That The two worlds combine, mix, the border yeah. is thin between them. Mm. And mm. Uh, changeovers take place, as we saw of Nero. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, a lot of cultures do have that, like you were saying, the sort of Twelfth Night or Saturnalia, where slave yeah, and master... Twelfth Night is obviously not at uh, Yeah, yeah, Sauron, no, but... no, no. But the, a kind of festival where master and slave swap place, you know, and where authority shifts from the high to the low, that kind of thing. Mm. And in, in most cultures, that tends to be temporary, mm -hmm. you know. And it, so it seems in a way as though Oingus is using a tradition of temporary reversal mm -hmm. in order to achieve a permanent reversal. Mm. You know, it's got that, it certainly has that flavour to it. And I mean, these sound customs have come right down oh, to yeah. comparatively recently. Yeah. Yeah, I was told about a custom, I can't remember where now, but someone who would now be, let's say, in his 60s, saying that he, uh, as, as a lad, one of the customs was that the local lads would go around the neighbourhood and they'd swap around everyone's gates, <laughs> which I think is really fascinating. It's the original trick or treat. Exactly, yeah. And the tricks were more prevalent. Yeah, yeah. And one of the greatest and most best-known tricks was um, that somebody would come home and find the donkey and cart inside the house. Yeah, yeah. And to do that, you'd have to take the cart to pieces yeah, yeah. and put it together inside yeah, the house so yeah. that they come home the door and there's the impossible exactly yeah. the inside is outside and the outside we promised yeah. you doctor who didn't we? <laughs> yeah and that that again relates to the all the nearer stuff with the customs where the things that should be outside the house or inside the house yeah, and yeah. therefore all these upside downnesses can and this happen. is absolutely central mm. to the traditional irish salon absolutely and really where the whole trick-or-treat custom began. came from exactly and it wasn't just a matter of giving sweets mm -mm. uh the tricks were very much part of salon. yeah yeah absolutely oh we could talk about this for hours as well yeah. maybe we better get on with the story <laughs> going, yeah because the next stage of the story Mythic actually gets in on the act. Finally, we get to, <laughs> to meet him properly. And we might, before long, actually meet Aideen too. You never know. Right, well now we have Mither coming to visit his foster son in his brand spanking new home at the Green Boy new home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's new to Oingus, let's say. Slightly used. Um, and while Mither is there, uh, they're watching again all these younglings, the fosterlings, out playing games on the green in front of the brew. Uh, but Elkford's fosterlings next door are also out uh, doing their shenanigans and wouldn't you know it, but a quarrel breaks out between Oingus's fosterlings and Elkford's fosterlings. Mither, in in a kind of generous offer really good to Oingus, yeah, uh, he says he'll go and sort the quarrel because he wants to prevent Oingus from trespassing on Elkford's land. Once wouldn't, again, wouldn't be tactful. Exactly, yeah. They're, they're still trying to be, you know, tiptoe slightly around Elkford. Um, but when Mither goes to try and break up this fight, he gets stabbed in the eye with a holly stick. And when he returns to Oingus on the Brew, he comes back with his eye in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, um, slight problem. <laughs> can you keep an eye on this? No. Um, and he can't go home now, can he? No, he says, you know, that this is, you know, worse than being injured. Like, if he was just injured, you know, then Oingus would have to take care of him until he were better. He would have to pay for his uthras with yeah. his um, sick line. Um, but worse than that, there's an actual blemish or deformity. And Mither can't go back to Breleth and rule if he's blemished. Mm -hmm. So, but Oingus knows what to do and he calls in our good old friend Dean Kecht, uh, to uh, who manages to heal Mither of the blemish. I think this is a great story. It's lovely. And what I like is you've got the story elements and motives that connect up with Moitura yeah. again. You know, it's great to meet up with Dean Kecht again. Yeah, nice to see him keeping busy. You're right, can't rule with a blemish. Yeah, yeah. It's really strict, that, isn't mm. it? Uh, well, it certainly is in the sagas, not so much in the law texts, but certainly in the sagas, and when we're dealing with the m mythical characters more than mm -hmm. anything else, you have this business of the physical blemish. Uh, it's not so much in the law text. There is that mm -hmm. one example of Conal Coich, the one-eyed, who's said to have lost an eye to a bee. And that, I know. <laughs> Sorry, I mustn't laugh. It's well, not funny. doctors say that it, it's, you know, it's highly unlikely that getting stung in the eye would cause that eye to go blind. But that, nonetheless, it's the story that's kind of cited mm -hmm. as the, the case history, if you like. It seems to be an archaic 
Um, almost like it's an archaic thing from uh, dating back from an earlier time. It's very strong in the stories. It is, it? exactly. And, and stronger probably than in real life because in that case of Cunnel Coich, he lost the kingship of Tara because of the blemish, but he didn't lose the kingship of Ulster. Mm-hmm. You know, so it it will differ from place to place. Now, I just hope that uh, Mither doesn't end up with a cat's eye, <laughs> like the doorkeeper in the, in the, children, of, the children of Turing. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be a slightly disastrous. So this sick line you mentioned. Mm. This, again, this is a, a legal obligation whereby if someone is injured on your land or by your neglect or, you know, by someone who's, who's under your uh, authority. You have to pay their medical expenses. It's more than paying their medical expenses. It's quite complicated. And, you know, there are obviously detailed legal texts about this, but essentially you have the person in your house to Mm -hmm. be looked after. Um, You give them obviously the best of medical care, um, but you also have to provide someone to take their place. Um, So to do the work that they are now unable to do because they're ill. Um, And that can include um, if a man or woman is of childbearing age, that can include uh, providing a surrogate who might father or mother a child while the other partner's away. That could get complicated. Yeah. Oh, that actually reminds me, that may be behind the story of Rhiannon. Mm. And uh, that's another story. Yeah, another long story. Yeah. And we still haven't met Aidy. No, we still haven't. (laughs) So let's keep going with this story. So, as you mentioned now, um, Oingus has to invite Mither to stay with him until he's completely better. Mm. But that's... That's not all. Of course, he's entitled to ask for compensation for exactly. his injury. Yeah. And this is what he asked for. He asked for a chariot worth seven covels, mm-hmm. a cloak befitting his status, <laughs> and guess what? The most beautiful girl in Ireland. <laughs> now, the first tool caused Angus really no problems. Yeah, it's yeah. just a question of going and getting them. Mm. But the most beautiful girl in Ireland? That's a bit of a poser. Mm. Well, fortunately, it's no random search. Mither no. knows exactly who he's after. Yeah. And yep, guess what? It's Aideen! She gets her at last. Sort of. Turns out she's the daughter of Alil, the king of the northern eastern part of Ireland. Is that yes. right? Yeah. And uh, Angus goes to get her for him. And mm. Now, he's made welcome, but Alil's not happy about the match mm. because Mither is of much higher status. Yes. Now, this is a problem. <laughs> he would be the loser in the match if he just lets his daughter or his foster daughter go. Mm. And the only way he'll agree is to demand a price, and it's quite a listy ask oh, for. Yes. First, he demands the clearing of wasteland into productive pasture. Mm-hmm. Now, Angus agrees to this, but he can't do it. No. Uh, but he knows someone who can. <laughs> I know a man who can. Yeah. And he goes off to a complaint to his father, and the doctor gets the job done in one, one night. night. Yes. We're, we're, we're at it again, this, yeah. this one night thing. Exactly. Uh, Twelve planes are cleared. Yes. But his work is not over because the next thing that the king asks for is the creation of 12 new bodies of water. He's, He's looking at bog drainage and land reclamation and wells to be dug, you know. And once again, this is somewhat beyond Oingus's capabilities. But luckily, the Dagta steps in and once again, it's all done in a single night. Now, you'd think that would be enough. <laughs> but... Alil points out that the land improvement is for his um, daughter's family, presumably yeah. his foster daughter's family. Yeah. So he demands something for himself. He wants compensation for losing his foster daughter. So yes. what does he demand? The girl's weight in gold and silver. Yes. And he gets it. Oh, yeah, he certainly does. Now, this isn't the Alil of Crookan, is it? No, I don't think it is. Uh, there are plenty of Alils around. We'll meet some, actually, even later in this story, much later in the story, not this episode. Common enough. It is, and particularly there seems to be a lot of kings called Alil. So, you know, this is just another Alil who is seemingly quite a low-status king somewhere up in the northeast around Ulster. Now, talking about status, I was under the impression that old Irish law treated women, well, if not well, not too badly. But here we have a king selling his daughter for profit. (laughs) You know, he just says, I'll buy her, I'll buy Mm -hmm. her from you. Mm -hmm. You know, he won't give her. He won't sell her because she says, oh, no, 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 you're too high a status for me. I can't possibly do that. So he says, all right, I'll buy her. And he says, fine, you meet my price, I'll sell her. So he's selling his daughter. Well... For one thing, it's not that uncommon. Um, a lot has been made, though, of uh, the status of women under early Irish law. And I think it's mostly that just in comparison to some other contemporary law systems of the mm. time, it's somewhat better 
you know, that women can have status and they can, can have property. property. Yeah, exactly. We mustn't get too romantic No, about absolutely it, not. And uh, the, for one thing, the business of, you know, selling his daughter, or I think it's her fo- his foster daughter in this case, um, at least it's not the diary system whereby a family pays a stranger to take a daughter off their hands because <laughs> she's such a burden and such trouble to look after, you know. Um, and there's there's actually no evidence of the dowry system in early Irish law, but the, but this business of a bride price, the quifka, is quite common. And part of it does kind of get invested, if you like, in the new household. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the marriage ends, if there is a legal separation, which is, you know, something that didn't happen again in Ireland until the 1990s, mm-hmm. um, then part of that bride price can go back with the woman to her family. Mm. So it's yeah. almost like an insurance that there will be something for her. Yeah, it is an investment. And I think in some ways it is a symbolic purchase, though, because you also get sayings in the law text that when a woman a girl she is under the protection of her father when she's married she's under the protection of her husband and when she's a nun or you know uh, with the church yeah if she's a nun then under the church when she's an old woman she's in under the protection of her sons you know so there is still this idea which is quite common in a lot of cultures that a woman always has to be under the authority of something but a woman could be independent have independent property she could and uh, particularly when you start to look at the marriage laws Mm -hmm. uh, the the coin law the um, law of the couple, as it's often translated, uh, kind of lists the different forms of union. They're, they couldn't all be called marriage because some of them are union through rape um, and things like that. Um, but the, the idea of the law text is particularly to lay out who's responsible for any children um, mm. that, that might come of such a union. But the most common forms of marriage, um, which are the sort of first three listed, the first one is a marriage of equal property. Mm-hmm. where both the woman and the man bring property into the union and then they have more or less equal status, you know, with the exception that men have more of a role in public life than and women mm-hmm. um, particularly seem to have a role in uh, domestic food production. So, you know, milk and crops and so on also come under her purview. Um, then you've got the marriage of a woman on man property where mm-hmm. the, the man brings in all the wealth and then, of course, the woman is very much subordinate to that. But you do also have the marriage of a man on woman property, mm-hmm. whereby a woman is bringing in the, the share of the wealth. And in those cases, she has much more authority to um, make contracts. So that contracts. is recognised. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. That when there's a woman who has you know a higher status and, and more wealth than her husband, then it does actually say their places are reversed, that the woman becomes the mm-hmm. husband and the man becomes the wife. In this case, You've got um, her family being mm. benefited by the, the, the land reclamation yeah. and land improvement. Exactly, yeah. And now I think that because Alil asks for this extra compensation, I think that indicates that rather than Aideen being his natural daughter, that she's his foster daughter. Now, again, uh, the relationship between foster parents and foster children in early Irish society was often emotionally much closer than that between natural parents mm. and children. So, you know, there's a way in which, you know, they they have a very close emotional bond. Um, but he would also then, if she was his foster daughter, he would also be losing the fosterage fee that her family is paying him to raise her and to educate her and so on. And so I would see the gold and silver as reparation for the fosterage mm. fee. And he may be just trying it on because someone of very high status has come to ask for her. Well, yeah. And, but you <laughs> see, that also then means that if Aideen is mistreated in the marriage, then because her husband is so much higher status, there's no legal redress. Yeah. That uh, her foster father or father family can't then go and say, you know, take a case against them because the difference in status is They're too great. Peers. Yeah, so they, they yeah. wouldn't be able to afford a good enough lawyer, if you like. Uh, would you put some of this stuff yeah. on, on, on the blog because yeah, it, I know. it's quite complicated. It is it's quite complicated. It's easier sometimes to read than to yeah, listen yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know that was a bit of a lot to take in, but I it's very interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. One thing, other thing that strikes me is you've got the Dagda doing Dagderish things again. Oh yes, absolutely. Even 
most of the moituri, mm. his almost magical skill, his super skills mm. are played up, aren't they? He yeah. keeps doing things that would take forever in one day. Exactly, yeah. Well, or, or overnight, you know. He's really and, the earth shaper. Here. Yeah, big time. And again, it's this business of clearing the plains and creating bodies of water, which is very much like the sort of Levergavola stories of each people coming to Ireland and creating X number of plains and X numbers of rivers. It's also what he offered to do mm. before the Battle of Moitura. Exactly. He offered to change the shape of the yeah. land, to lower the mountains and hide the seas. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, it's the proper role for the Douta. Now, I think perhaps we better not go into the naming of all the the, the plains <laughs> and, the, and the bodies of water exactly. that were created. We, yeah, we're it's an interesting list. It is. I haven't tracked all of them down um, and I will put them up on the, the website. Um, one thing that did strike me, though, was that a lot of them are sort of Ulster based. I'd say the majority of them are up in the northern part of the country. Um, there's a couple which are in Meath and West Meath. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Mithersbury Leth is in West Meath uh, or in the province it's of in Meath. Longford. I know, I know, but in the, pro the western yeah, yeah, part yeah, yeah, of the yeah. province of Meath. But it's now Midland, in Longford. Yeah, exactly. Aside from a couple that are in that middle part of the country, the, the rest do seem to be Ulster, and this Alil is said to be an Ulster king. So it sort of bases the story up north, yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go on with the story because yeah. we we uh, now need to get into the actual story of Mither and Aideen. Get them together at last. So, finally, we get Aideen returns to the brew with Oingus. Yes. And then Mither gets to sleep with her and he's given his cloak and his chariot and everything. He's got yeah. everything he wanted. Mm -hmm. And it's only then, the day they're going to leave for Breleth, mm. that we actually get to hear about Mither's first wife. Yes, and that he is, in fact, already married. Confirm <laughs> not. And this woman is no pussycat. <laughs> Not at all. No, except in the sort of cat fight sense of things. She is wise and she is skilled in magic as we heard in your story at the mm -hmm. beginning. Um, she is not one to be meddled with. Um, and so Oingus was absolutely right to forewarn Mither and say look, you know, treat her with care. You know, she could be a problem. So when Mither and Aideen first arrive back to Breleth, again, they're greeted by Fuamnach. Uh, she shows them around the land and shows Aideen where her chamber is. Um, but doesn't know, last, does it? We know that it doesn't last no. long and that Fuamnach is just biding her time. So as soon as she gets her alone, just as I said at the beginning, she strikes her with a rod of rowan and turns her into a pool, pool of, of water. water. Yes. And then she just walks out and goes back to her foster father, Breschel's yeah. house. He's the wizard, you know, the yes. famous of the learned uh, magicians of the Dodonans. Exactly, yes. And the text just comments, from then on, Mither was without a wife. Yeah, so she seems to have, you know, walked out on the marriage. But that's not the end of Aideen, um, as we heard, that the heat of the house uh, sort of condenses the water into a little worm. And then this worm or larva becomes this extraordinary beautiful purple fly it's beautifully described it in the text really isn't it is. in fact i've used bits of it at the beginning mm -hmm. but i really want to just read this bit yeah, yeah because it's lovely it is gorgeous it was as big as a man's head the comeliest in the land sweeter than pipes and harps and horns was the sound of her voice and the melody of her wings her eyes would shine like precious stones in the dark the fragrant and bloom of her would turn away hunger thirst from anyone around whom she would go the spray of the drops she shed from her wings would cure all sickness and disease and plague in anyone around whom she would go. She used to attend Mither and go round about his land with him as he went. To listen to her and gaze upon her would nourish hosts in gatherings and assemblies in camps. He would fall asleep with her humming and whenever anyone approached who did not love him, she would awaken him. He hasn't, yeah, he hasn't really lost her. No. This beautiful fly becomes Mother's constant companion yeah. and he needs no other wife. Yeah. You know, you do have to feel sorry for Fuminot. Well, at least I do. Yes. I mean, she must be really fed up. Yeah. I mean, second, but mind you, second wives, uh, they were kind of perfectly acceptable. Yeah, they? They, they are not uncommon. And in fact, again, there are different terms for them in early Irish law. The first wife or chief wife is the mm. Cade Wincher. And now we still use the word Wincher in modern Irish mm. to mean kind of the folk or the family. So the Cade Wincher, Wincher, she's the, the first, the head. Yeah, the um, chief wife. Exactly. And then subsequent wives slash concubines 
are known as adultrach, which comes from the the uh, the Christian concept of adultery. Oh, right. Yeah. So now there probably would have been some other term prior to that, I would imagine. But it's not unknown. There's there's quite a bit of legal wrangling yeah. between the traditional legal status and then the church laws and so on. But that's a whole other day's discussion. Yeah, because it must have clashed somewhat. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And there's quite a lot of humming and hawing and wrangling with the, the, uh, the ideals, the morals of it. Um, but at any rate, it wasn't uncommon. But there the Cade Wincher, the first wife, definitely has higher status mm -hmm. than uh, subsequent wives or companions or concubines. Um, and in fact, to the extent that for the first three days after husband brings home a new wife, the Cade Wincher can inflict any non-lethal injury on the adultrucht, on the new wife, um, for the first three days and there's no penalty for it. <laughs> Oh dear. In response to that, all the adult trackle the new wife can do is scratch or pull hair or uh, talk badly about the Kate Winter. <laughs> so all she can do is sort of very, very minor kind so of So in fact, Fumanoch had not broken the law. No, I think that in, in many ways she was doing exactly what was allowed to her, which was to, you know, change Aideen. She presumably did not expect her to to die exactly or to be lethally injured, but to change her in such a way that Mither could no longer have her as a wife. And then... Turning her into a fly is kind of I major. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, of course, she walks off as well, you know, and that's why I think they, they're starting... It's essentially a divorce proceeding, yeah. uh, which, again, a woman can do uh, without losing honour if she is overlooked by her husband for another woman. And well, I think that's definitely Yeah, as I happened. said in the beginning of the story, he states that he needs no other wife while exactly. he has the fly. Yeah, yeah. And that is a repudiation exactly. of Fumanoch. Yeah, and so Fumanoch then has very strong grounds for dissolving the marriage and taking all her property away with her. Mm. Oh, know? a pool of water, a puddle. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure I can think of another example where this particular transformation takes place, where anybody gets turned into a puddle. Well, there are similar ones. Uh, the story of Othrus, um, which we covered some time before. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that uh, she's off trying to get back her cow that the Morrigan stole while she was asleep. Um, and again, when Othrus herself falls asleep near Kruachan, Morrigan comes and turns her into a sort of a pool or a stream, and that becomes a little river. Yeah, I suppose you don't notice it when people become rivers. Exactly, it's slightly but different, isn't it? This yeah. is a this puddle. Yeah, there's definitely a puddle on the floor, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> I've turned you into a puddle. That's why I think of you. You're a puddle. Exactly. So why a fly and why a purple fly? I mean, it, you see it as a dragonfly, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that's the image that I have in my head, all right. You know, I don't, I don't know why that might be. Maybe I'm influenced by drawings I saw as a child, but that's how I mm. think of it anyway. And it's also a very strange fly. It's able mm. to, you know, it's it can heal. It mm. can. It's almost uh, something that has this aura mm. of... So soothing and magical and... Yeah, a bit like the singing birds of Rhiannon. Mm. That, you know, when anyone is around them, they bring peace and healing. Yeah, yeah. Or um, Cormac's magic branch. Exactly, yeah, you know, yeah. That brings peace. Or even in the Welsh story of Bran, once mm. his head gets chopped off, <laughs> he gets his head cut off mm. and it becomes an oracular head and anyone around it is surrounded by perfume yeah. and peace. It puts them almost into a trance mm, of beauty. Mm, yeah. Very strange thing, that one. It is, yeah, yeah. Maybe it seems to have similar properties. It belongs to this. It, it mm. is of the other world. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's interesting as well that it is specified as being purple. Um, and this is back to, you know, my obsession with colour words and the ideas of them. Um, now, the Irish word for purple in old Irish is the same as modern Irish, is curcra. Mm. Um, and that has exactly the same Indo-European root as the, the Latin purpura, which is where we get purple. purple. Um, now, as we know, the Romans associated purple with nobility because it was this very rare pigment mm -hmm. that only the very highest status it's could wear. Lydian purple. Mm -hmm. And it is that most beautiful kind of violet yeah. purple. But in Ireland... Uh, Kirkra is not that kind of violet purple. It tends to refer more to a sort of a coral pink or magenta type colour. So the flash of the cheeks. Exactly, yeah. yeah. What's interesting is that because it has this kind of, you know, healthy glow on your cheeks, 
that associates it with nobility. Health and nobility. Health and nobility. Yeah. So you have these two different types of purple, which both signify nobility, but for completely different reasons. So she's reasons. turned into a pretty pink fly. Yes, but a noble, a noble, noble fly, fly yeah, is yeah, the most so important I'm just, I'm yeah. just seeing it as I know. being funny. <laughs> um, there, there's one thing, sometimes it's said that the, uh, that the Celts, and I'm not talking about just yeah. the Irish, but the Celts here, had um, the butterfly was the image of the soul. Mm. But, you know, I'm not sure where that exactly comes from. I must yeah. check that out. It may be one of the Roman Exactly. It, it could well be it's, a classical source. It's a bit of a... Everyone knows. Exactly, yeah. It's and one I, of those ones. I'm not absolutely sure, mm. but I will... See if I can find the yeah. source of that. Now, it's it's not unusual. Again, there are quite a lot of cultures around the world that see the butterfly as a representation of the soul or even of the mind. I mean, the Greek myth of Psyche. I'm not you even know, sure that Pythagoras didn't hold that. Exactly, I, 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 don't, yeah. I won't swear to that, though. Mm, I haven't mm. gone and looked it up. So it's not uncommon, let's say. Yeah, that wasn't quite what Fumuk was intending. Absolutely not. Uh, in the next part of the story, uh, we see Fumnoch apparently offering an olive branch and coming to visit Mither in yeah. Breleth. Now, she brings along with her some pretty high-powered sureties. She has the Daita and Lu and Ogma all with her. And now she might be going to negotiate a divorce. Yeah, it's not made clear, is it? It's not really, but I think that that might be part of it. But she seems to be coming in peace. But then she sees Mither's obsession with this Aideen fly and she just loses it. She calls up this great magical wind which will blow the little Aideen fly away um, so that she won't find any rest for seven years. <laughs> she must have been a bit fed up to find out that she really hadn't got rid of Aideen at exactly, all. Exactly, yeah. So now we've got Lou mm. and Ogma mm. along with the doctor. Yes. They're all in this story. Yeah, yeah. But can you explain what you mean by sureties in this context? Well, this is why I think that it might be about negotiating uh, divorce. Because when you have sureties, it's because there's either a, a treaty or a contract. Mm -hmm. And uh, what sureties do, there's several different kinds within Irish law, but... Um, Essentially, they are to ensure that both parties uh, stick to what they've agreed. So, so with some sureties, they can use physical force. Other sureties, they'll pay if someone defaults on uh, an agreed payment. The sureties that you have are also then an indication of your own status. Mm -hmm. like, she's brought the highest exactly, exactly. sureties. Like she's really pushing her own status. Yes, yeah. yeah. That yeah. she can bring the top dogs along. Mm, mm, exactly. Like, not top dogs. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> top, top brass along. Exactly. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I get the feeling you're right because it, you know when she suddenly blows the Aideen fly away mm. and just loses it totally, there's no note made that oh dear she's broken any agreement exactly. about keeping the peace yeah yeah it seems as though it was to do with uh, contract mm. and i think you're right it may be to do with divorce yeah well again particularly because of the statements such as that after fulmnach leaves that mither was then without a wife you know so it seems pretty final um, and yeah, that it, it seems that her intention was certainly to leave Mither on his own. So Poor Aideen, she just gets blown. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You see, remember at the beginning, I said I had a feeling this mm. was a metaphorical quality. There was a metaphorical quality in this mm. story. Yep, jealousy and spite. Yeah, it's yeah. all there, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So eventually, Aideen, as this purple fly, lands on the cloak fringe of Oingus Mackendog. Now, he recognises her immediately. Yeah. I mean, you'd think so if she was such a spectacular fly that would cure all ailments. But he brings her up to his Grianon to keep her safe. There's a lovely description in the text, if you can give that to us. OK. And that sunbow was filled with fragrant and wondrous herbs, and she throve on the fragrance and bloom of those goodly precious herbs. Yeah. Nice again. It's a lovely description to yeah, this text. Yeah, there really are. Now, I think it also says that Angus carried this green on, this sunbower around with him, so it's a bit hard to visualise what it is. It feels like a sort of cage or, mm. or um, a, a box, exactly. a special home. He made yeah. a home for the fly yeah. with, with everything it needed. Exactly. That, that's how I kind of imagine it. But Fumnach once, once again offers to make peace. Um, and seemingly, you know, Oingus and the rest of them, they? no, they just don't learn. They invite her again and she uses the opportunity to call up another great blast of wind and to blow the poor little Aideen fly away on her 
travels again. The blast of wind drove her along in misery and weakness until she landed on the roof tree of a house in Ulster and fell into the golden cup that was before the wife of Adar in the province of Concova. And of course, the queen drinks the fly. Just one thing here. Yes. There must it must have got a lot smaller. <laughs> You remember at the beginning it says it was the size of a man's head? Yeah. Right. You'd have a job to swallow a fly the size of a, of a man's head without even noticing it. <laughs> well, maybe the fly got smaller through wind erosion with all the great storms she's been through. <laughs> or maybe just whoever put it together forgot. Yeah. Well, either way, the Queen drinks the little fly with her drink and lo and behold, she gets pregnant and bears a daughter. And what does she call the daughter? Aideen! <laughs> So there she is again. Now she's being reared as the daughter of Aether in the province of Ulster. And the last statement in this part of the story is that between her first conception and her second birth was a thousand years. Yeah. That was some story. <laughs> it certainly was. Well, that's as far as we're we've decided we're going to get with the story for yes. today, isn't yeah. it? Well, it's, it's sort of Aideen's first life and it sort of has a natural ending point um, so we thought a good place to stop for now. We'll start her second life yes. in uh, three in, weeks time. Yeah, But there are a few themes, uh, you know, the, this double conception for instance, it's yeah. not the only time it happens is it? No, I mean particular. it's particularly similar uh, to the second conception of Cúchulain in uh, the story of Cumbert Cúchulain where uh, his first birth, he was born in the other world, very mm -hmm. much like Aideen is an other world character, if you like, at the beginning of this tale. And later on, we'll be looking at uh, another version of the story, another part of the story in which she is clearly another world character. Absolutely, yes, yeah, absolutely. That's for another time. Yes, um, but Cúchulain doesn't survive the first uh, transition from the other world into this world, and so his second conception happens because Dechtena, who is is his mother, is grieving for the lost child and calls for a drink of water from her bronze cup. And uh, in the cup is a little worm. And uh, there's a lovely description of how the worm kept trying to jump into her mouth until, you know, he was just finishing the last drop and finally the worm manages to jump into her mouth. And that's the second conception of Cúchulain. And so here we have a fly that, you know, little insect little creature that falls into a golden beaker this time and that the queen drinks that and becomes pregnant with Aideen. Mm -hmm. I think it's too reductive to say well we've got you know the woman is the vessel for the birthing of a child. Not all the time but in these very particular moments when it's very important mm -hmm. that someone is born again or born properly that at that for that moment and for that time that the female character is this precious vessel you know mm. this shining mm. vessel with this tiny little seed of life in it that will miraculously then grow into a whole person. Well, we've talked about the metaphorical quality of some of mm. these stories. Mm. I also think that it's, it's too easy to say, oh, it's just a misunderstanding of conception. Yeah, exactly. I, no, I it's really nothing to do with that. I think it's that. No. Um, I was also thinking, um, before you finished talking about the beaker, of, mm. of um, Gwion and Caridwen. Mm. Yes, yeah. And how in the Welsh story of little Gwion, mm. who is chased by Caridwen, yeah. and finally she becomes... A it, she becomes a hen, he becomes an ear of corn, and she yes, swallows him. Exactly. And he's born again as yeah. a bard, Taliesin. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's, there's no, there is, a, of course, a wonderful cauldron yeah. in that, that yeah. story. Yeah. Not a golden beaker. Mm. I think it's a quite special it. birth. You know, yeah. it's, it's not, like you say, it's not a question of not understanding where babies come from. No, I know. wanted to get that clear because exactly. I really, it seems like it, but I really don't think no, it's No, it's it. not. I think it's more that it signifies that this is a very special, very particular birth. And that uh, what it signifies is the essence of someone who has lived before, who is mm. then going to be reborn. That brings us on to our second theme. This yeah. is one of the stories that's often um, cited as as proving the, um, shall we say, Celtic people's mm. belief in transmigration. Yeah, yeah. I actually don't go along with that. Well, no, and it's it's down to quite a simple principle, which is that you don't write down something that's commonplace. You don't record something that's obvious to everyone commonplace. You record and you mythologise things that are mm -hmm. extraordinary. And so these rebirths are extraordinary. And I think that they only happen because the person being reborn 
is of this sort of super magical mm. type that they can be passed on into a new birth and into a new body. Mm. Um, I, I think that, again, it's a misunderstanding to say, well, it appears in a story, therefore they believe that everyone yeah. was reincarnated. No, it's the opposite. I think it gives the stories an epic mm. saga quality. Absolutely. The, the one thing that does exist, these stories can go on from before birth to mm. through lives, through, you know, through a thousand years is not enough. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's hard to get at, mm. but there is no no evidence that ordinary people were expected to go through this process. It exactly. only exists in story. Yes. There's nothing to connect it with the everyday beliefs of people. Exactly. As far as we know. Yeah. Uh, there, there's never... I have to say, as far as exactly. this we is, know, we don't know. This can only be speculation, but to me it seems that, you know, what the reason that it's in these stories is to signify extraordinariness. Mm. I know. mean certainly there is proof that the continental Celts believed in continuance of life in mm. some form. I mm. think that seems to be fairly, yeah. certainly the Greeks and Romans mm. were absolutely certain this is so we're quite jealous. Yes, we talked yeah. about this in a previous exactly, yeah. podcast. But that's more to do with if you like afterlife or you know the, the, the it was a quality continuance of, afterlife. of the death. Yes, you afterlife know. that yeah. they were envious of. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes that Pythagorean views mm. Being associated with the yes. continental Celtic, but this is a difficult, difficult subject, and I don't know the answer. No. I don't think anybody does. Just no. that we don't actually believe that that this, this is story a proof. proves exactly that they believed in transmigration. Yeah. Another thing that strikes me as we've been going through this first part of the story is that there seems to be an awful lot of information about law and status contained in these extremely mythological stories. Yeah, it's kind of curious. I found. I was reflecting on it and thinking that it tends to be more those tales that are characterised as mythological or part of the mythological cycle uh, where I find myself uh, explaining you know what mm. what sort of social structures were like and what you know what contra how contracts are made and yeah. kept and we've insured. Been, we've been talking about so ones that relate to birth, to mm. relate to property, relate yeah. to marriage, relate yeah. to status and injury and all those things. Yeah, it's been a huge amount in mm. this section. Mm. And I yeah I don't have a definite you know this signifies X about it. But my feeling is that. It's that I have to fill in the blanks that would have been clear to an original audience, but that to that original audience, uh, the stories are relating to issues they have to encounter in mm -hmm. terms of their social structure, in terms of, you know, the, the legal ideas that un underpin their everyday lives. And re reinforcing that exactly. sense of natural justice, mm -hmm. rightness. If it's so in the mythological world, yeah. then it's so in our world. Yes, exactly. I mean, even with the uh, understanding that it's all sort of it writ very large in the mythological world. Ah, but that's the purpose. Of exactly. a good story. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the first part of the wooing of AD. Yes. Yeah. And we'll get on to our second life yes. next time. Yes, we will indeed. And look forward to that very much. Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagus Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www storyarchaeology.com You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com